This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Wilfred Riley. Wilfred is a professor and the author of Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. During our conversation, Wilfred talks about his early life and upbringing, taboos in American society, using empirical data to assess political claims, incentives within the media for fomenting controversy, race and racism in America, the St. George in Retirement Syndrome, how many unarmed black men are killed by police, the 1619 Project, and political and cultural changes that might improve America. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Wilfred Riley. All right, Wilfred. Well, first, I wanted to say thanks again for doing this. Um, it's wonderful to meet you. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. So welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Good to be here. Thanks, man. Um, I wanted to start with, I, I know you're, you're very active on Twitter and you have a large Twitter following. And I did a bunch of research for related to your work. Um, but I wanted to quote your, your tagline on your Twitter handle, which is a college professor now I'm a former corporate executive, freedom rider, law student, and poor kid. Um, there's a lot online related to your work, but not a lot that I was able to find related to your background and your personal life. And I would love to give um, the listeners an opportunity to hear about who you are and where you came from. Um, I'm sure that is a very long story, but what what is the what is your background? Where did you grow up, and and what is the journey that brought you to where you what you're doing now, which is a college professor? Well, I had a pretty atypical background for kind of an upper middle class academic, which I think is an advantage, actually. Um, yep. When I read Thomas Sowell's writing, it's, it's sort of a similar experience. Like he was born in a working class black neighborhood and went into the army, finally went to college, but originally an HBCU and then moved on to went to Harvard for a while, as I recall, University of Chicago um, and started writing, started teaching and all this, I mean, working to support himself as a grad student. And so on. this one, this went on for, you know, a period of decades. Um, my, my background is somewhat similar. So I was, I grew up in the hood, basically like my mom, I myself wasn't extraordinarily poor, interestingly enough. So I got to see kind of both sides. We didn't, we didn't have any money. That's part of the tagline, but my mom was an inner city teacher mm. for a lot of her life. Um, so, I mean, she taught in, um, what is district 31, which is East Aurora, just outside of Chicago. I was originally born on the South side of Chicago and moved from there to kind of the pre-gentrification sort of middle North side of the city. So I lived in Wicker Park for a while and for, you know, academic and athletic reasons, moved just outside the city, this other sort of working class community, uh, the East side of Aurora, where my mom was then teaching. Hmm. So 
growing up, it was kind of just ordinary working class life experience. I mean, Aurora in the 1990s was the murder capital of the Midwest uh, pretty consistently for a period of two or three years because mostly African-American gangs from Chicago were coming out into the region and clashing with sort of the, the natives, you know, Hispanic and Caucasian gangs. And a bunch of people were, were getting shot. Um, so that that was part of the, the background for my experience. And I, I mean, I didn't gangbang. I was an athlete to, to some extent. I mean, I'm 5'9", so it wasn't all that incredible. And was just, a, in general, a student. I mean, obviously, my mom taught in the school district, so it was fairly hard for me to completely slack off in class. Hmm. And as a result of that, I ended up getting more college opportunities than I'd expected. My honest expectation after high school was that I would go into the military. And it, a working class high school in the Midwest obviously sends a lot of people through kind of that conduit path to, you know, the Army, Navy, so on. So our high school, East Aurora Senior, had this giant ROTC armory on the campus. And you'd see mm -hmm. people, you know, outside running around and doing calisthenics and so on. The military recruiters, who are perfectly nice, normal guys, would be sort of out on the track when I was working out. My spring sport was varsity track. And there was always that element of like, hey, if you don't make it to college doing this, Uncle Sam's waiting for you. <laughs> so, I mean, that was that was something I thought was pretty likely. But in fact, I mean, and I, I now understand the, the power dynamics involved. I mean, I was a black kid. I was from a poor area. I did well in standardized tests. My SAT wasn't off the charts, but it was something like 1360. So I, I now realize that I, obviously I was I was going to go down that that next step, but that that's what ended up happening. And I, I could go into a little more detail about the background in Chicago, which was an interesting, I mean, sort of city kid experience. I mean, I lived in the city itself till I was around twelve, and this is the that's that one movie kids era, um, the eighties and early nineties before they really started cleaning up Chicago and New York. So, I mean, you would definitely, you know, going to school, get on the trains and see people painting graffiti and so on. And, you know, Wicker Park was still poor at the time, but was already the arts district for the city. So you'd see purple haired skateboarders walking by you know, homeless guys going the other direction and so on. But um, as as I got through that entire phase, I went on to college. Essentially, I went to Southern Illinois University which at the time was kind of a chill intro to college. I mean, it was a relaxed sort of party school environment. The school at that time was embarrassing its administrators by consistently making Playboy's list of the top 20, uh, you know, engagement sort of party social schools in the country. So it was definitely solid academically as well, but you got to kind of work your way up into the college experience. I was a pretty bad student early on. I was smart. But I hadn't really gotten used to the idea of doing a lot of work or paying a lot of attention in school. And in high school, I used to do all of my homework just in my easier classes and then go kind of do whatever I wanted. But gradually got into the academic experience a bit more. And when I graduated, I was 20. Yep. I'd always I'd always been kind of younger. I was socially promoted or whatever the term is uh, up through one grade. I think it was third grade because they didn't really think they had much of anything to teach me in the Chicago or the Aurora public school system at that time. So um, when I got out of college, oh, I also got out of college in three years. This is something I'd recommend that people do, by the way, yeah. uh, strategically understand kind of the college process. Um, so don't go in not sure of your major and just take a bunch of classes at, at the cost you'd be paying at a four-year school. I mean, there's a lot to be said for doing your first two years at a community college and then transferring. 
So you're going to go in with a really high GPA and you're going to pay maybe $2,400 for that whole experience. Uh, there, there's a fair amount to be said, frankly, for joining the military and then going to college for free yeah. with four or five years of that just covered. Um, but there's also something to be said, I think, for what I did, which was taking while I while I was on scholarship, I got a got a scholarship there, but taking, you know, 18 hours every semester and focusing more on your major and on getting out than on getting you know, secondary credentials and so on. But anyway, I went I went into college at 17. I guess I had, I had turned 17 just before going. I got out in three years or a little over. So I was 20 years old and I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. So I had sent out a couple of grad school applications. I remember sitting around my you know, apartment near campus with my girlfriend, Lisa, Lisa A at the time. And, you know, sitting these in the mail, I don't get a good job. Maybe I'll you know, become some kind of professional. And actually I got into, I got into law school. The, the interesting thing about law school is that it's almost totally random. Like affirmative action plays a role, legacy uh, admissions play a role, but there are a huge number of like reasonably qualified, ambitious applicants for every school. Yeah. So I, I applied to like 15 schools. That was the majority of my grad school applications. I got into two. I got into the University of Illinois, which at the time was like 15th in the country, and the University of Dayton, which was not. <laughs> um, I was also waitlisted at Yale, kind of at random. So, you know, maybe I would have gone on and done something completely different or worked for Bain and become one of those jackasses. And I gotten into <laughs> Yale Law and just stayed on that track. But I went to U of I. And again, when I got out of there, I was 22, maybe, maybe 23. So the thing that I had focused on to the extent you train for anything in law school was white collar criminal prosecution. I mean, I'd take in crim law, crim pro, crim pro two. I'd take in, if I recall correctly, the white collar class. And I mean, I think I would have been solid enough in that field. Uh, my interest at the time, and I actually was pretty radical in class terms for a while. To some extent, I still am. Hmm. But this is around the time you're talking about 2002 to 2005 of Enron I mean, a lot of these other, what is it, Health South, these major corporate scandals. And I thought it would be interesting to try putting some of those guys in jail. And as I saw it at the time, competing with them, frankly, as versus locking up kids for you know possession of a dime bag of weed or something like that. Yeah. But again, the your first job as a lawyer, this is true in prosecutors' offices, definitely. It would have been even more true if I'd gone into big firm civil law, but it's often pretty miserable. Um, one of the guys that I graduated from law school with who told me a story where he applied at Jenner and Block, which is a large Chicago law firm. And as he was walking through the office, he spotted a cot on the floor, like by one of the desks. And he just raised his hand politely and asked, you know, Mr. Junior Partner, why are there bids in the office? And the guy said something along the lines of, well, sometimes one of our very young associates, which is what you guys are going to be, just decides they really want to go hard and put in a few extra hours. Yeah. And then he shoved the thing back under the desk and no one could see it. The trip went on. But looking at that kind of thing, I, I did send out some apps, but I also I applied to one or two grad schools. This time I was taking it a lot less seriously. But I got into Southern Illinois, which is where I'd gone to college and went back there for grad school. Now, the story would be pretty mundane, like, you know, kid grew up in working class area, you know, got into OK grad school, went on to teach. But that ended up being a lot more complicated of a process than I expected. Uh, my mom got very sick when I was in grad school at Southern Illinois University. Uh, she had cancer. Unfortunately, she did not survive in the end. But I went back to Chicago to kind of take care of and be with her. Now, so I did my first four years pretty smoothly. And when you're going for a PhD, you have a couple of years of classwork. 
And then you're, you're expected to do some teaching, send in some articles, but you start writing your graduate dissertation. So I got to the start of that process and then this, this health problem arose and I ended up going back to Chicago. And that's when I got a lot of the other stuff that's in the, the sort of half joking Twitter tagline. So I was one of those bullpen guys on LaSalle Street for a while, which was an interesting job. I worked for Marcus Evans, the large, aggressive British company. My focus wasn't on sort of the classic securities trading, but the, the focus of their business model is tracking down CEOs and getting them to meet one-on-one -on -one with other CEOs to push product. The model works well enough, but the entire job is based around signing six-figure contracts with these CEOs to do X. So you have to use a variety of you know, innovative techniques to get their cell phone find their home address, find, you know, their personal desk at their office, so on. So a lot of, a lot of screaming into phones, a lot of guys in suits, you know, a lot of people taking suspiciously long trips to the bathroom. <laughs> but I mean, so I, I did that for a bit. Actually, I did that for a couple of years. The Freedom Rider job, quote unquote, will also happen during that period and actually happened before I worked for Evans. Um, as you probably know, there are large canvas organizations in every city there. To some extent, there the kids are like, Hey, I got a minute for the environment or whatever, if you're walking around, yeah. but the people doing that aren't volunteers. They're hired by third party organizations. Mine was, let's say the fund for the people's interest, but to go do this for a period of time. And they're sent throughout the neighborhoods of giant cities um, when I was there and actually in a, something of a leadership role there, they're sent on the road. They go to other communities and try to raise money, sign up voters for these causes. So the, the Freedom Rider label is a, a third in jest. But I worked for this group on a campaign for the Human Rights Campaign, which is obviously a gay and gender rights group for, again, two or three years. Like our office was based on the south side of Chicago. We canvassed through the winter. We sent people to into some pretty hostile regions to to raise awareness for this, and that was that was a fun job. There's a lot of hostile engagement with strangers. Do I have a minute for what? You know, if you go to say Birmingham or something yeah. like this, um, a lot of office romances, quote unquote. But I went from there to the sales and trading floor environment. Um, I wrote the dissertation, which ended up becoming a book, and again, just lived this sort of very urban life. Um, I lived in Chicago at one point. I had an apartment in the tallest building in Aurora, which is like 30 stories tall. But, you know, I did all this for a period of five or six years after the first four years of just coursework. And at the end of that, I mean, unfortunately, you know, mom passed away. Um, I got the degree. I closed the degree in 2015. So it took a lot longer than I expected. I mean, I went into grad school in 2005. But with, with that in hand, I mean, again, things went back to normalcy after the Two year, two to three years of street activism, two to three years of, you know, working in a bullpen in a suit and some all these the sort of antics. At one point, I owned a small business devoted to nightlife with uh, my good buddy Ozzy. So, I mean, we were throwing these parties and small raves and so on throughout Chicago um, and Aurora as well, the surrounding community. But anywho, um, I got the degree and stuff got a lot more mundane. You know, I applied on the job market. I was, I was pretty good. I mean, I figured the dissertation would be publishable. Um, I had a couple other publications while I was in graduate school. And generally, you're going to go to a school that's on par with or one step down from the school you matriculated out of, where you got your degree, unless you're an earth-shattering genius. Um, yeah. 
whether that's me is up to others to judge. But I, I expected I was going to take pretty much the typical path. So I got, um, you know, most of the offer letters were from or most of the uh, interview requests were from one was from Sam Houston State, as I recall, um, University of Wisconsin Parkside, Kentucky State. And Kentucky State struck me as interesting because it's a historically black school, but it's located in Appalachia or right near the, the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. So in both those communities, I thought there'd be an actual chance to do some good and teach kids and so on. I could have stayed in the sort of financial sector really as long as I wanted. I wasn't you know, standing around the street fighting with people at that point, yeah. but decided that I, I did want to use the PhD. So I, I went down to Frankfort, Kentucky. And, you know, that that's the end of sort of this long rambling intro story there. But that that's where I am right now. Actually, I live um, I have an apartment in Louisville. I have a house or you know, half of a building in Frankfort. And I, I live here now. Yeah. I know today a lot of what we're going to be talking about are taboos and and some of the topics related to the the taboos that I, I think we probably both agree on related to American taboos are related to race. What yeah. was that always an interest for you? I'd be curious to know before we get into the book um, when you began to visualize in your head that this was something that maybe you were hitting on that would be a, an interest for you that you might want to pursue and eventually write a book about? When, when did that start to dawn on you as a subject of interest? Um, so that's actually a really interesting question. When I grew up, class was a lot more important to me than race, actually. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these areas, I mean, if you're talking about the south side of Chicago, that, that's a heavily black area. But you also have regions like the Bridgeport neighborhood, or Canaryville, a.k.a. Cloverland, that are very heavily Irish-American, Italian-American. You have one of the country's largest Chinatowns down there. The unifier is really that everyone's kind of poor or working class. Yeah. I mean, the, the average guy in Chinatown is, without stereotyping, an immigrant from China. I mean, so if, if you go there, if you travel around to play basketball, get some good Chinese or Italian food or something, you see a lot of different colors of poor, striving people kind of. So that was that was that environment. I didn't live in the hyper ghetto, which in Chicago, you'd associate more with the west side of the city. Hmm. Um, but no one, no one really had any money. And as I said, pretty openly, I left Chicago as, as a young man and moved to East Aurora. And that was even more of the same experience. I mean, that's the very Latino neighborhood. Uh, East Aurora, I would say when I was there's about 50 percent Hispanic. Uh, it's a little more than that now. But you also you also had some African-Americans. You had a lot of poor whites. I mean, you had people from Eastern Europe. So on down the line. Uh, shout to my buddy Ram Suleimani. I mean, who had that background, but a, a number of a number of people from you know the former Yugoslavia, Bosnian refugees in that period in the late '90s are coming over. Obviously, terrible war over there. So again, like everyone was sort of different colors, but everyone was broke. Um, and that was the that was my that was to me was the significance point. Like if we went on dates with our high school girlfriends, I mean, we're personable enough as a group of guys. But if you went to surrounding cities like Naperville, Illinois, is a place that comes to mind, you would realize that other people had dramatically more money than you did. Yeah. And that to me, like when I went to college, part of my motivation was to get educated. But I think also for most working class kids that do that, there's that idea of I'm going to get a better job that doesn't involve working with my hands by going up through the social class process. You know, and I remember before I went, my mom showing me specifically how to wear a tie. She herself had a pretty upper middle class background. She just, again, wanted to help kids and was bored with conventional office jobs. But I mean, you know, wear a square faced watch, all that kind of crap, you know, um, that 
was the primary divider between people that I noticed as I went from East Aurora to places we would go to socialize to a university campus. And actually, interestingly enough, the race thing, one of the reasons I said that I'm, I'm kind of glad to have had a normal American background, like I grew up in a working class immigrant community in the heartland. I think I avoided a lot of the, and Saul says this as well, uh, by the way. So does Charles Murray, for that matter. I mean, most people that didn't take that conventional like Andover to Yale path um, generally find it a positive thing. They learned how to endure troubling times better than they otherwise would have. But they also got perhaps the traditional American view on education, immigration, so on down the line. So I guess the point I'm making is a lot of the race stuff really hit me when I got to college. Yeah, that, that was the first time I started hearing about, quote unquote, wokeness. Oh, another point, uh, unless you were in the gang scene, which fortunately I wasn't, gangs tend to break down along racialized lines. So, I mean, at that time in Chicago, you still had the Gaylords, which were mostly a white gang, not a very well-named one, but tough guys. I mean, you had the Latin Kings, you know, you guessed it, the Black Disciples. But unless you were in that scene, in the late 90s, this sounds like a cliche, but people really just got along. Like, everybody cheered for Jordan and Bird. I'm sure there was some racism, not at the same time, but I'm sure there was some racism in the background. Like if you bought a white girlfriend home, would your mom be a little angry for some of my buddies? I'm sure at least as much in reverse, probably. But in day to day life, in a scene like high school varsity athletics or the, the local theater troupe or something like that in the north in 1996, race didn't strike me as a particularly big problem. You would notice occasional issues. Your white buddy might not be able to apply for the same scholarship that you did. Or in reverse, you might take two more job applications. I remember once it was 11 for me and nine for a Caucasian buddy for you to get get summer employment. Hmm. But on a day-to-day level, there wasn't an enormous amount of ethnic conflict. And you were able to talk to people who had come from areas where there was. Like, again, one of my buddies was from Bosnia. You know, there were people from the Chiapas region of Mexico. So you this the racial stuff as opposed to the class stuff, family problem stuff, because, again, this is the era where divorce, you know, 50 percent of white and black families marriages ended in divorce. So that you definitely saw feminism. You definitely saw, you know, the impact of hookup culture, divorce culture, all that. But race wasn't really that big of a deal. And the, the reason I'm doing that lead in is that when I got to college, all of a sudden, there were all these sort of post-Marxist theories about how oppressed I was. And as a smart guy from a majority-minority city, who, again, although this wasn't my primary definer, was an athlete, had a professional parent, uh, which is not 100% in poorer regions, I had never thought of myself as oppressed at all. I thought of myself to some extent as advantaged. Hmm. Um when I judge myself against other people, I would sort of look at material or intellectual qualifications. Do they have a car? That sort of thing. Sometimes even silly stuff. Could I beat them up? Um, you know, it, it would be none of the stuff that I confronted in college had I confronted on a regular basis in day-to-day life. But when you get there, obviously, American higher education leads extraordinarily far to the left. That's not a controversial comment. So I was exposed for the first time to sort of value of whiteness theory, white privilege was very sort of in at this time. I mean, the, the original papers, Cheryl Harris, Andrew Hacker had come out in the mid nineties. Um, I was exposed to sort of critical theory in general. I mean, the many derivatives of Marxism, 
I took a couple sociology classes. I majored in political science. So I began to see that there were a lot of people focusing on race issues who genuinely perceived themselves as oppressed. But to me, it was a bit bizarre because all of these people struck me as very rich and comfortable. Mm. So that, that's kind of how that, that happened in college. Um, last sentence, really. But the, the desire to look at some of the claims that were being made, like the claim of white privilege, did, I, I think your question was a good one, that did, I suppose, begin on kind of the American University campus. It certainly, by, by the time grad school came around, I was curious about a lot of the claims that were being made. Um, and so my dissertation actually looks at Andrew Hacker, very famously, Queens University political scientist, asked a group of white kids how much money they'd have to be paid to be black. And leaving aside the pool, which is like Irish and Italian guys in Queens, I'm not sure about that one. But leaving aside the pool, the average answer was $50 million. And that is that is kind of the quantitative proof that still today is used to demonstrate, you know, the value of white skin privilege in this institutionally racist society, et cetera. And it struck me that it was very likely members of every group would say this. Uh, by my second year of grad school, I remember there was a day when we were playing basketball and I actually asked a group that happened to be all upper middle class Asian and black guys how much they'd have to be paid to become white. And all these people are perfectly friendly toward Caucasians, many interracial relationships. But they started asking sort of the same joking questions that hacker subjects had in reverse. Like, would I get dumber? I was probably an Asian guy. But I mean, like, would would my fashion sense change? Would, you know, would my scholarship continue to exist? Would I be a bad dancer? And everyone's just sort of screwing around. But you realize that minority people aren't generally less attached to, say, a black identity than white guys are to a white identity. The dissertation actually looks at this in some depth. Um, I use kind of modern quantitative methods. And I ask people, if this were even possible, how much money, frankly, would you have to be paid to change your core characteristic identities, your race, sex, sexual orientation, religious faith tradition, so on down the line. There are a series of experiments known as list experiments that are run in the dissertation. And a long story short, what I find is that if you view this as a measure of racism at all, the most racist group in U.S. society is old Asian men. Um, black people in general attach more valuation to their identity than whites do, so on down the line. Like the, the initial claim, whether or not you think there's some slight advantage to being Caucasian on the job market, but the initial claim that white people value themselves, others don't, there's lower self-esteem among members of minority groups. I mean, I and others have empirically found just, just isn't true. So I, I think that definitely brought forward the question of how real are, are a lot of these claims. White fragility, for example, seems like, like a classic test case for this. Like if you confronted members of any group with the, the stereotypes about their ethnicity, would they not respond with anger or with a bit of nervousness, something like that? Uh, as far as I can tell, there's never been an empirical test of whether blacks, for example, are any less fragile than whites are. Looking at modern discourse around, quote unquote, the N-word and so on, I tend to doubt it. But yeah, going from a functional multiracial community, which is what most working class exurbs are, to campus where there was this constant focus on ethnic identification and feminism and you had the you know every distinct group student center did kind of make me think these are new ideas but i didn't think they were smart new ideas i thought they were very stupid ones so i started trying to test some of them yeah 
Yeah. And I want to get into that. I want to get into the the tests that you've done and the the data that that you've obtained from those tests. I'm going to read a quote from your book, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. I, I thought this was a very good inter- introduction to what a taboo is in general. Um, the quote is, tackling taboos is difficult, but necessary. Very often, most often, they are used not to shield strong and valid ideas from pointless attacks, but rather to protect weak ones from worthwhile criticism. The censor tends to be an individual. The censor tends not to be an individual fully confident he is right, but rather one who is terrified to the core that he is wrong. Only by ignoring the censor's taboos and beginning to speak can we challenge bad ideas, overcome them, and replace them with better ones. Let's keep talking. Let's start talking. So, the name of this show is Keep Talking. And I'd love to transition from that quote um, to ask you in your. And I should preface this by saying that I know in doing research about your work that that you've already alluded to this. You attempt to apply empirical, rigorous testing to claims like the subjects that you have brought up so far. Maybe we can start the, this section of the conversation by having you talk about what you have found in general that might surprise people related to what the data seems to indicate related to subjects that you think actually matter to our society? Okay, yeah. So I I think starting with a broad lens, a lot of work coming out of the contemporary softer sciences, and certainly the humanities and the grievance studies sector as well, is pretty questionable. you, 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 in my opinion, should be pretty skeptical of it because of the extraordinary concentration of political bias in that world. So I posted a graphic to Twitter the other day that was breaking down each of the major academic fields by the percentage of liberals and conservatives in the field. And in sociology, the percentage breakdown was something like 79% identified Democrats, 0% identified Republicans. Hmm. Now, you had had a barrier group of independents who identified as anything from libertarians to Marxists if I recall correctly, but that's still pretty remarkable. Like the number of openly Republican, if you use that as a proxy for conservative sociologists was zero. So I think, and you can get into some other things, like what are the qualifying GRE scores for each field? And we're talking about the studies and so on. But I, I think there's an entire body of work that comes out often done by very smart people, but that comes out of a sector that leans virtually 100% along one axis of the political compass. And that's that's extremely bizarre. Um, and with, without kind of straw manning or whataboutting, I mean, you, you do have to ask the question of how would people on the political left treat social science if the primary fields, say political science, leaned 98 to 2 in the direction of the hard right, and people kept producing non-replicable studies about how women love being housewives and international wars are almost always justified and so on down the line. And I think the obvious response is people would treat this as a bit of a joke. Um, I'm not quite at that point with all of it, but I definitely think a, a lot of rigorous testing of the claims that are out there is needed. So I'll give some examples, actually. This is one of the things that I've, I've tried to do. One of my fields uh, in college, at least to the point of going through four or five classes on it, was methodology, which at Southern Illinois is the 500A through C sequence. I also took qualitative methods 
I don't know if that's actually on the degree, but it's, it's always been a, an interest of mine. So I'm using those basic techniques. I mean, linear regression, logistic regression, more advanced regression methodologies, even sometimes simple cross tabulations and basic knowledge of experimental design to examine some of the things that are very frequently said. And this, this can range from the very simple, like one example, one of the first pieces I wrote for a major public intellectual uh, journal or outlet came out in Quillet. And I looked at the question of whether there is an epidemic of transgender murders. This is a claim that's made constantly by groups like my old employer, actually, the Human Rights Campaign. Um, there's a transgender day of silence and remembrance and so on. And I don't, I don't really have any problem with that, but I wasn't seeing that there's an extraordinarily extraordinary amount of supplementary evidence here. So I looked and even I was surprised. I mean, the HRC and other groups post data publicly of all of the known trans murders on an annual basis. And when I looked, it turned out that in a typical year, there are maybe 32 of those. Mm. So I, I simply compared the murder rate for biological males who identify as trans, aka trans women, to a number of other groups, uh, African-Americans, lower income whites, so on down the line, men, like all men as a block. Hmm. And what I found is that the, the trans female, if you want to use that term, murder rate is, is lower than any of those. So I was able to break down what the actual trans murder rate was, given standard estimates of the trans population and so on down the line. And say, well, this this really doesn't seem to be a problem. I mean, beyond the level that you don't want anyone to die, the transgender murder rates seem to be far more on par with the murder rate for women overall than for men overall, despite the fact that all trans women are male. Hmm. So, I mean, that was a piece that attracted a lot of attention, fair amount of backlash. But no one I think the point is that no one could really challenge the core numbers that are at work. I mean, if these if this is an itemized listing of every one of the murder cases and the murder rate that comes from matching that up against the transgender population is X, well, you know, the facts are as they are. But that that's something that's happened that I've done a number of times, actually. I mean, I also looked at the Stop Asian Hate Movement. Um, myself and legendary research associate Jane Lingle compiled a list of probably the 100, there's 136 of these cases that had really reached prominence, that had made it into mainstream national media and kind of broke them down by perpetrator characteristics. So ethnicity, mental illness, known or not, so on down the line. And the, the presentation of the Stop Asian Hate movement initially was very much, we have white people, possibly white supremacists attacking Asian Americans. What we found was dramatically different. Um, more than 50% of the perps were black, the rest were mostly white, but crazy. You had a lot of homeless people, a lot of people who probably should have been incarcerated, institutionalized. So, I mean, the, the piece goes into mental patient deinstitutionalization, some other things. But again, the, the, the basic test is, was this sort of white supremacy? No. And I've ranged pretty far afield with this kind of stuff. Um, I looked at whether COVID lockdowns work for a British magazine. At one point, there were seven U.S. states in 2020 that opted never to lock down. Hmm. So across a bunch of metrics, and this the regression models in this one are pretty solid, actually. I mean, including, simple, but pretty solid, but including, you know, population density and variables like this. Is there any evidence that lockdowns work better than basic NPI, like protecting seniors? 
And the answer was no. There were fewer deaths per capita in, if I recall correctly, every one of the lockdown, non-lockdown states. The highest death per capita DPC states until quite recently were New York and New Jersey, which locked down pretty frantically for much of 2020, but which also didn't protect seniors at all. The average COVID victim was 81 and were at one point doing things like shipping sick seniors back into nursing homes. So again, you have the sort of starting popular idea, which is just one life. We need to do anything possible to protect the vulnerable. But you didn't have a lot of examinations outside of a couple of medical journals by that point of whether the the techniques that were being used actually did anything significant, had any statistically significant effect. So I've done this across a bunch of different issue areas, I, I think, competently. But the focus is very much the claims that are made by modern, softer academia or by people that are kind of on the fringes of that. Ibram Kendi, I suppose, is still an academic, but does, as I do, a great deal of popular writing, but that have a lot of influence on kind of upper brow thought in the USA. So a lot of this is focused on kind of white privilege, systemic racism, the claims of Black Lives Matter, so on down the line. So I, the dissertation that I described to you includes what my test to some extent of the classic white privilege hypothesis. Do whites value their identities more? Are they more reluctant to change them? So on down the line, I find very little support for that. But the book Taboo, I think, which is the most recent book I've written, sort of takes this idea into all of the fields we've described. It's not as quantitative as an individual article, but I mean, like chapter one is the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. You know, are the claims that were frequently made about thousands or tens of thousands of unarmed black people being killed by the police? And I mean, I can give you examples of this. And Ben Crump has a book out, Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People. Were those real and valid? And again, that was just basically looking through police shooting statistics, vetting the Washington Post database for accuracy, that kind of thing. But uh, the total number of unarmed black men shot by police in a typical year seems to be between 10 and 20. Um, last year was 18. And everyone agrees on that from Heather McDonald to the WAPO. That, that's the consensus figure. So, to, I mean, to, to focus on that specifically, and, and that was an issue that I, I yeah. know you have gotten a lot of attention for. But but to to highlight that, that fact, and I think this ties into many of the other subjects you've already spoken about, you know, what given let's give the, the that fact um its prominence and its accuracy i don't think most people in this country would come close to that number in terms if they were oh, asked if they were asked what what they think the that number probably is i think they might be off by an order of magnitude or more um you know i i love the question qui bono who benefits right who, if this does tend to be if this is a taboo, if this is something that's basically shielding people from the accurate truth of the matter, it it then bears the question to me, why is that fact not more widely known? Who is benefiting from the from concealing that fact from the general public? You know, you've done a lot of research on that subject specifically. You know, and this week it I, I kept coming back to this idea that 
when I was a kid, there was there was a a tagline that was often used, which is that sex sells. And it's I think also fair to say that fear also sells. You know, the oh, yeah. an, another quote that I I love about the media is that the goal of the media is to make every problem your problem. But I think in this specific case, the the goal of of much of the media is to amplify a problem in a way that is a bit deceptive or very deceptive. Um, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, but for you, how do you answer that question of who is benefiting from concealing that fact from the public and amplifying, um, you know, racial tensions in America? Is it literally as simple of the fact that so much of the media is reliant on advertising? It's a business and controversy sells. How do you think about that subject? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That media quote is worth repeating. I mean, the goal of the media is to make every problem your problem. And I would add a sentence to sell product. Mm. I mean, like the a lot of people forget this. The media is just an ad delivery vehicle. Yeah, um, I'm good friends with a couple of people, mostly on the right, but by no means entirely that work in television. And they're pretty open about this. I mean, if you ever do an interview with live, really, it's Fox, but I assume CNN, MSNBC, so on are the same. There's a very hard break before each commercial. Like you'll hear words in your ear, like we, we got to get you done. You'll you'll say your piece, and then the ad for Toyota Tundras will come on. So I would assume that across the ideological spectrum, there's there's definitely a desire to run the content that generates the most clicks. Hmm. Yeah. So the goal is to make every problem your problem, is to get you almost panicked and wired into the screen, and that's because that's what sells advertising in an environment where you're moving commercials for, you know, a half million bucks per hit. Yeah. Um, so I think that in terms of the, the broader, uh, and I'll, I'll get into some other people that might benefit, but in terms of what you just said, the average person would get the figures for police shooting and especially police killings of blacks wildly wrong. That's, that's not a hypothetical. I mean, the skeptic research center recently did a well done large in survey where they asked people how many unarmed black men they thought were killed uh, annually just each year by cops. And the average answer from people that identify as leftist or liberal was around 10,000. And uh, it's worth expanding that a little bit. They didn't all say 10,000, but it was for very liberal. I think it was 30 to 40% of them said it was about a thousand or more than a thousand. Then another 14 to 15% said that it was about 10,000. And then 8% said that it was more than that, like more than 10,000 people annually, black people annually were murdered while unarmed by the police. And it's worth putting that in context. I mean, 2020 and 2021 have seen near record highs for murders, at least in the recent past. And there's still only about 20,000 murders per year. And black people are overrepresented, but we only commit maybe half of them. So the total, the number of people that these, these guys thought were killed by cops annually while black is larger than the number in many cases of black murders total that there are in a year. So when you say it's overestimation by an order of magnitude or more, that's literally correct in the sense of 10 to one or square up 100 to one. You're talking about 18 unarmed black men that are killed by police, not 10,000. So that, that's an incredible discrepancy. By the way, when we look at regular media consumers, though, we find these sort of discrepancies all the time. I mean, KexTC, the large consulting firm, recently found, and this is back in 2021, I believe, this is 2022 now, but they recently found that the average American believes that 9% of the population has died of COVID. 
So that that's the typical figure. People and people act as though they're being reasonable. They'll say, "Well, I don't think it's twenty percent. I don't think thirty percent. It's round. It's eight percent." Mm. I mean, now COVID nineteen terrible scourge took about four hundred thousand people last year, but there are three hundred fifty million Americans. That's that's roughly one in a thousand or one in nine hundred. If nine yep. percent of the population or ten percent of the population was dead, that would be around thirty two million people. Yeah, I mean, there'd be coffins lining the streets. We wouldn't be able to bury that many people in the cemetery land we have available. So people that are constantly exposed to the media, as read the most random topics from killer bees to child kidnapping, tend to be very, very afraid. Uh, We've known this since Glasner, a left wing but very skilled sociologist, pointed out in 1999, the culture of fear. Um, So who benefits from all this goddamn terror? Uh, I think that you're 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 saying, well, the media companies obviously benefit from it. Yeah, sure. I think that's that's probably half the answer. The other thing people forget, though, is often it's just Grant buried in Grant's tomb. I mean, who benefits from this constant panicking around race relations and so on? The groups that are designed to initiate panic around race relations. Hmm. I mean, so we sometimes forget how large the grievance industrial sector is. I mean, there's some groups that are loosely affiliated with this sector, like 100 black men that do great work. But a lot of them are just sort of on bullshit since the 1960s ended. I can't think of a positive thing, really. Reverend Al or Brother Jesse, Sean King, for that matter, has done for the black community. Um, And the the figures go a lot, go significantly beyond Reverend Al's 1990s budget at this point. I mean, Black Lives Matter received $11 billion. If you look at the primary organizations like BLM, GNF, over the past couple of years. That's a famous economist article from last July. So who benefits from this? The people that received $11 billion benefit. I mean, I would assume the ACLU, SPLC, the national BLM chapters, very powerful players work together to coordinate the flow of this information into mass media. So it the the kind of structural model isn't necessarily all that complicated. Yeah, I, I should concede that, you know, I grew up, uh, revering the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I think many of these organizations, same with the ACLU, um, th- they have done such amazing work historically. Um, I think your point is that in modern times that they're often off base with their assessment of the state of things. I want to read you a quote from a, the book, The Madness of Crowds. I- I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with this idea, the St. Saint, Saint George and Retirement Syndrome. But I, this is a direct quote from Douglas Murray's book, St. George and Retirement Syndrome. After slaying the dragon, the brave warrior finds himself stalking the land, looking for still more glorious fights. He needs his dragons. Eventually, after tiring himself out in pursuit of ever smaller dragons, he may eventually even be found swinging his sword at thin air, imagining it to contain dragons. If that is a temptation for an actual St. George, Imagine what a person might do who is no saint, owns no horse or lance, and is being noticed by nobody. How might they try to persuade people that, given the historic chance, they too would would without question have slain the dragon? Our public life is now dense with people desperate to man the barricades long after the revolution is over, either because they mistake the barricades for home or because they have no home to go to. In each case, a demonstration of virtue demands an, an overstating of the problem which then causes an amplification of the problem. You know, I love that quote. And I really, I think that's an important idea to keep in mind. And, and to many, in many ways, I resonate with the, the impulse of the activists who might be 
experiencing the St. George in retirement syndrome, because there is, I think, a human impulse to want to be on the side of the angels and to fight for fight against injustice, to fight for justice in a society. I think your point in your research, and I think this is what makes your research so interesting is that it does try to be objective and empirical and scientific in assessing actual reality. And my concern is that these taboos are, as you, as I said in the quote from your book earlier, it's concealing the truth. It's actually a move made by someone who is not particularly confident in their assessment of reality. Um, and I have just personally in my own evolution had to, you know, I, I considered myself the leftist when I was in college and even shortly after college. And it has taken a long time, I think, to just have reality collide with a lot of my conceptions of the way things are in America. And so I, I empathize with people who have an impulse to be an activist. But I think, you know, uh, taboos are often an affront to truth. And they they are prop they're they're propping up lies um, in, in a society. Something else that I wanted to say to you uh, related to this whole subject, and I, I talked to John McWhorter a couple months ago, which was an enormous honor for me. And I know I don't know if you know John, but I know you know of each other, and that you guys have have connected in in some ways online. One thing that I wanted to say to him that. I, I didn't get a chance to say, which was I, I had talked to him during the conversation about the fact that you know my mom is a teacher as well. And when we were growing up in the heartland in the Midwest, um, as kids, we would watch Martin Luther King speeches. And it, it was such an emotional and beautiful vision of what America could be and, and could become. And I, I just look around now at some of the attempts to now separate children on racial lines to you know implant ideas in kids heads who were young that there is an oppressor and oppressed group of people from immutable characteristics and i just see that separate from any political leanings i have as an utter betrayal of the martin luther king vision for the country um i'd love for you to speak to that if you can of you know you've already alluded to the a critical race theory issue in this conversation, but um, what do you what do you make of that? I, I, it seems like in your in your you know, conversation today and in other conversations, I've heard you mention this before that a lot of this is rooted in academia, and I'm wondering if you think these social scientists who are the high priests in our society in universities. That they're, do you think that they are experiencing this St. George in retirement syndrome? How do you assess their insistence on things being so bad? It, it, it dawned on me too that progressives seem to have a hard time admitting progress. Um, what do you think is that is that root for those professors, the uh, you know the intellectuals of our society on campus that are trying to propagate? these ideas in society and in many ways are successful in doing so. What, what do you think is at the at root of why they are so insistent on that? Yeah, I, I think St. George and retirement syndrome, that famous old description, um, Don Quixote syndrome, you're trying to be a knight years after the era of the knights Aaron ended. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty accurate description. So the, the underlying baseline fact here is that the civil rights movement was a smashing victory now close to a century ago, if you're talking about the first components of that. 
I mean, I'm from the northern, and obviously we'll get into Brown versus Board. But I mean, I'm from the northern portion of the United States. And my high school, I think, in fact, I know has been integrated since the 1930s. So I mean, that obviously racial conflict by that point wasn't over in the USA. But Brown versus Board, I mean, mandated desegregation, at least technically, even in the South, took place in 1954. Um, the Civil Rights Act making racism civilly and in some cases criminally illegal, or let's say racial discrimination, that was 1964. Um, and I mean, you're, the, the entire process, the, the end game of the first round of the civil rights movement, I mean, the assassinations of Kennedy, King, all of this took place 50, 60 odd years ago. Hmm. Um, the one example that I use here is we've had pro-minority affirmative action in the United States at a large scale since the Philadelphia plan in 1967. Now, again, no serious person thinks that the existence of pro-minority affirmative action means racism doesn't exist or something like that. But the primary victory, so 1967, it's 2022, hmm. and it's 55 years ago was the initiation of affirmative action, not of desegregation. Again, ethnic conflict has not ended. Ethnic conflict, like the poor, will be ever with us, probably. But this is something that, when I was growing up, wasn't really disputed outside of, again, a few academic debating salons. I saw it a little bit when I got to, say, the University of Illinois. Even there, it was muted. Hmm. But the idea at this time seemed to pretty much be that the civil rights conflicts of the past were in the past. And what remained to ensure equality was enforce the Civil Rights Act, perhaps allow some private sector affirmative action and let people move forward. Yeah. Uh, reparations was a fringe idea at the time, so on down the line. And I guess I still think this is correct. I don't describe myself as radically conservative. I mean, when Bill Clinton was in office, I was a Bill Clinton Democrat, mm -hmm. like most urban black and Irish and Italian guys who just gotten old enough to vote. <laughs> and in many ways, I'm still a Bill Clinton Democrat. Um. So I, I don't think that what we've seen is the ordinary American sort of working man or, for that matter, center right business person, which is what I was prior to academia, really moving dramatically to the right of the spectrum. I think we've seen the center of intellectual energy in the country shifting left away from them. I, I, that's obviously what's happened. And that, that's been tracked by some of the better papers in political science. So the the first point the civil rights movement won is just inescapable i think what you're describing is a downstream result of that to yeah, some extent yes yeah so the would be saint george's no longer have the old dragons to slay what about southern segregation well that's been over for 65 years hmm. okay well what about the legality of racism um well it there hasn't been any such thing for 58 years um, could we could we get some system into place that will actually advantage minorities to make up for the past, a kind of quasi reparations? Well, if you look at affirmative action or even poverty policy, that's been in place for 50 years. So I think what you see a lot of on the progressive left is, frankly, the redefinition of terms to create yeah. new enemies to fight. Um, that that is entirely the sort of Ken DeAngelist uh, take on racism, for example. Yeah. Um, the argument now is that any system that produces disparate outcomes among groups like intelligence testing must be racist because the only options in terms of that gap are genetic inferiority, which no one wants to admit and which isn't real or racism. The reality, of course, is that that's just complete BS. 
uh, one group could study slightly more for the test. Asians kick both white and black Americans asses. Um, even moving away from things like that, which at least implies some cultural gap, although cultural gaps exist all the time and they are not controversial. There are many other variables. I mean, if you're talking about income or crime rate, it's relevant that the average black guy is a decade younger than the average white guy. I mean, if you want to move that to the modal average, the most common age for whites is 58. Most common age for blacks is 27. So whether you're talking about wealth on the left or crime on the right, you're being completely disingenuous if you don't point out that the black guy is 31 years younger than the white guy. Yeah. I mean, so all of this, the, these arguments are incredibly weak, the, the ones that are coming from the current prog left, in my opinion. But the reason they're weak is that there's still the desire to slay the dragon, but the dragon isn't what it used to be. You're out there hunting wyverns. Um, and I, I personally think that there are probably better things to do with your time than hunting wyverns. But I, 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 yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, the really last sentence here. I think that the institutional structure that we've both agreed on is a problem here. So, I mean, it, it, it's easy to make these comments and toss out a few jokes and say, well, why don't they just go do something else? There's still probably some women's rights issues out there. The reason it's not that simple is that the, the organizations, the ACLU, the SPLC, which we both used to admire, exist. They're not going to tear down their building, that fortified SPLC center, the, those lawyers that focus on race, and go do something else, help out the developing world or some such. So we, we have to find a way to get past these redefinitions of non-problems into problems. And that that's the tough issue from a leadership perspective. I, I agree with you. And I think my worry is that these institutions and these professors, they still have such power where a lot of the ideas in the culture, if you think of ideas like fashion, they can't, you know, separating the truthfulness, the 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 veracity of the statements that are coming out of academia, it is just fashionable, I think, for large numbers of people. I certainly identify this who are in college to agree with their college professors and to continue to revere institutions like the ones that you have spoken about in this conversation because their parents did. And um, why I think it matters is because if they are incorrect about assessing reality and they continue to have, you used this word earlier, they use their massive amount of energy and resources to fight a non-problem and to create hysteria, it can it has the possibility of destabilizing a society. I, I want to I talk a little bit about a, a video that um, you made related to the 1619 Project, which is something that I know we emailed a little bit about and the video has gotten a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, I want to run through the primary points that you make in it and, and then allow you to speak to it. And I, 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 in my mind, this is another one of those um, ideas in our culture that he's, has become very fashionable to agree with. And I think very few people have really thought through what the primary um, foundation is of the 1619 Project. So I'm going to tick through the primary points you make in the video, you obviously can correct me after I'm done. Um, and then I want to want to get your thoughts on it. So to summarize the 1619 project, and just to give some background, it was published by the New York Times in 2019, won a Pulitzer Prize in 2020 for commentary. The primary claims is that the US was founded really in 1619 when the first slave came to America, and that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the Declaration of Independence, was essentially a, a smokescreen to protect the founders' slave holdings. 
and that racism is not a part of the American experience. It is the American experience at root in the country. And then you tick off the three primary claims of the 1619 Project. The first being the preservation of slavery was the real, co- real cause for the American Revolution. You point out the fact that the founders' reasons for revolution were taxation without representation, conflicts over debts from the French and Indian War, the Stamp Act. The most important reason was the desire to, to set our own path as a country, as a sovereign nation. You also make the point that slavery wasn't under threat from the British and that Britain didn't free its own slave in its own, colon- in its own colonies until 1833, which was 57 years after the Declaration of Independence. You said that slavery was hotly debated at the Constitutional Convention, but that was after the War of Independence had already been won. The second point you make is that slavery made America rich. This is a claim by the 1619 Project Project, that the slavery made America rich. Your point was that slavery did make some Americans rich, and you note that Eli Yale was one of those people, but that it actually hindered the American economic development in the South. And that in 1860, just before the Civil War, 90% of the skilled, well-paid laborers in America were in the North, including the vast majority of its factories. The cost of abolishing slavery was enormous. 360,000 Union soldiers died to free 4 million slaves. And that our GDP has grown 12,000% since abolishing slavery. The third primary point of the 1619 Project, racism is an unchangeable part of America. It claims that we're an inherently racist country that can't overcome its flaws. You point out that we're the most successful multiracial country in history, the only white majority nation to ever elect a black president twice. You can see that there have been major setbacks, but you also think it's crucial to note that the major progress we've made within the last 400 years, 100 years, 50 years, 2 million black African legal immigrants have come to America in the past 50 years alone and have become one of the most successful groups in the country. Why would these people move to an evil racist country? Furthermore, a vast majority of whites have also advanced the cause of racial equality. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed by the US Senate, which had out of 198 white senators. That video in my exposure to the 1619 Project was the best, most concise takedown of its primary claims. And I think for a lot of Americans who love this country and admit its flaws, but are steeped in history, the assault on the foundation of the country and what, despite its warts and all, what it has stood for in the world, you know, the 1619 Project in many ways is an assault on that idea. I want to give you an opportunity to add anything that I left out there, but I think for me, why this matters, in addition to it being, I think, factually wrong about what America really is, it, it is also attacking the, the nucleus of what America stands for in its population and its citizenry. And that is, that is playing with fire, um, especially when the people who are writing that have such cultural influence. I want to just set the table for you to respond to that in any way that you would like, but um, I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen that video to to watch it. I'll, I'll include that in the description below the YouTube video. 
how would you respond to that? Is there anything I missed that you would add? Yeah, thanks. I mean, so first of all, I think that's a good summary of the video, which came out with uh, PragerU about a year ago. Um, obviously, you know, right-leaning organization, I lean at least to the cent right myself, but the video is pretty factual. It's just a breakdown of the uh, the errors in the 1619 narrative. And again, the, the 1619 project made extraordinarily sweeping claims, which I think you did a good job of summing up. So at, at the specific level, I mean, the 1619 project claimed that the motivating reason, the primary reason is their language for the American Revolutionary War was the preservation of slavery. They argued that slavery is the thing, I think was the language that made America wealthy, created great fortunes for men North and South is the language. Um, they argue that racism is in the blood of the United States. Uh, it's this sort of heritable primary quality of the country. They argue that almost everything that made America truly unique, this is marketing materials now being dead honest. I don't know if this is in an essay, but came out of slavery. And it struck me looking at this that a lot of these claims are just facially nonsensical. I mean, slavery made many slave masters rich to take the most defensible of them. But we lost, I mean, one in four Southern men was wounded or killed during the Civil War. I mean, the Civil War moved America's debt from virtually nothing into what would be hundreds of billions of dollars today. To argue that sort of slavery uncomplicatedly made the USA wealthy, the South was a backwater throughout the era of slavery. That's something that I don't think any competent historian would just sort of so aggressively argue. I've, I really haven't heard that claim. And this is why the 1619 Project, I think, was taken down so aggressively by people ranging from sort of, you know, the OG Phil Magnus over to the World Socialist website. But that was the most defensible of the claims. I mean, um, the everything unique about the country came out of slavery seems facially wrong. I mean, the example I give in a recent uh, National Review piece is Indian immigration. Um, you know, pre-existing Native American societies. That, that's just something that I don't think anyone could support. The Revolutionary War claim, I mean, Britain didn't free the slaves. So there, there's a technical debater's point here. Britain discussed freeing the slaves in Britain pretty early on. But Britain didn't free the slaves in their overseas oceanic colonies until 1833. Hmm. I mean, by which point we, we banned the slave trade in 1808, fought the Civil War in 1861. So that, that's kind of between those two dates. But it's a long time after 1776. So uh, you kept finding these mistakes. Um, I don't I don't just want to pile on one piece of academic work. But I mean, the 1619 Project's fact checker wrote a fascinating article for, I believe, The Atlantic, just talking about what she had told them to take out of the project. Well-respected black historian and how she was essentially ignored. Um, I And I, I think that this is, by the way, this is the general problem with the quote unquote CRT debate. What parents are being told, like what people active in the moms movement, for example, are being told is, look, you guys aren't experts. We're just trying to teach history. And if you're not familiar with the political power games being played, that's actually pretty convincing. Who can object to the teaching of history? Hmm. But the reality is that what 1619 or the Howard Zinn curriculum or some such does is not present history. Honestly, it's presented an extremely slanted far left view on history that includes mistakes like those I just mentioned. No one objects to teaching slavery, honestly. So those are the problems with 1619 or the, the false claims, in my opinion, that that's the issue with CRT more broadly. And I think we can discuss the horrors of slavery, but also put them in rational context. When slavery existed in the USA, slavery existed around the world. It existed globally. 
the civilized Arab and black states in North Africa conducted a slave trade in whites. This is known as the Barbary slave trade. A larger slave trade in black Africans, the Arabic slave trade, involved no whites in our contemporary sense. That involved the black kingdoms selling slaves to Arab uh, traders, sometimes raiders. Those individuals went to the Middle East. And in the USA, um, as a black man, I would obviously say slavery contributed to the early U.S. economy. But slaves, I mean, you're talking about perhaps 15 percent of the national population concentrated in our poorest region, uh, producing about equivalently. So you can actually look at what percentage of GDP those slave made goods made up. Um, I would assume about a proportional amount. I've never seen an estimate over 50 percent, even before you get into for example, purchasing power parity until you, before you get into the fact that the product of sort of white yeoman farms might not go into the GDP calculation. And then you have to look at what was the productivity of slavery as versus any other possible use of the same land, which could have saved the South from backwater status. What's the overall cost benefit once you work in the costs of the Civil War, which again killed 360,000 boys in blue, about 300,000 Confederates. And a final point, if you're talking about the slavery as the thing that made America what it is today, the, the GDP of the United States has increased, as you said, about 12,000 percent since 1866. So are those funds, the money involved in Meta or something like that, do those trace back in any way to this unfortunate historical period 150 or 200 years ago? So all these are questions that any serious social scientist or any serious historian is going to have to ask. And I don't find that in these sort of pop public debates, they, they very often are asked. So I, I asked a few of them in a quick video that was my contribution to the pop public debate. Yeah. Um, so. I, I, I want to, I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation. And I, I want to talk about a, a couple more things with you. Um, you know, I think it's important when we have these conversations to also admit that the country is obviously far from perfect and it still has its its problems. And I would ask you that question. You know, you're a data-driven individual. I think you're doing the best you can to try to understand the reality of modern America um, with facts and to speak those clearly. You know, if you were president or you were just a citizen who wanted to propose you know, policies or cultural shifts that you think actually would have a chance of truly improving the country. What do you, what are those options, right? What, what are those possibilities for how we might be able to improve America in general? I think that's a fascinating question. Um, so, well, I, I mean, I have plenty of answers, actually. So first, I don't think that the kind of deep historical focuses of a lot of the current debate are useful at all. Hmm. Um, I don't think that contemporary racism really has much of anything to do with the performance of groups in the United States. Um, there's definitely some effect of racism on lower level hiring. If you look at audit studies, I discussed my own experience with that. But I mean, I, I think the exact reverse would be true if you look at successful college applications or Fortune 500 job applications or something like that. And the reality is that of the 10 most successful groups in the USA, if you just go on Wikipedia or Britannica and look at a list of incomes, uh, eight are minority groups. Hmm. Indians are in the number one spot. 
I believe uh, two and three are still Taiwanese Filipino. There's generally a black group, South Africans and Nigerians that cracks the top 10. I mean, so it, then this is without Jews being included, by the way. I don't, I don't mean to be glib there, but I think there's some, some power players you could break out of that white group, Arabs that aren't generally considered white in, in practice. So today, when you look at, at figures like those, I, I simply don't think Nigerians actually are the best educated. I think South Africans are in the top 10 terms of income. But when you look at these, these sort of debates, I, I don't think there's much of an argument that an immigrant to the United States from a stable black country, Jamaica, would have a dramatically different experience than an immigrant to the United States from a stable, stable similar income white country, Northern Ireland or Greece. Um, so I don't think that this constant focus on sort of the white gaze or digging out the last remnants of racism and feels like ornithology, that, that has nothing to do with the problems that we see in the USA. Problems like crime are, in fact, distributed across groups. I mean, there are problems in poor white communities. If you look at the opiate epidemic, there are problems in black communities, problems in Latino communities. So it, I, I don't think a race lens there makes a great deal of sense at all. So what would I actually do? Um, I think in general, there are pretty consistent policies that work across time in terms of improving societies. So I would say when I look at things, the Republicans are doing better right now in the USA. Um, they have a more coherent position on crime, fatherlessness, illegal immigration, welfare policy, non-CRT sort of traditional education until you get into creationism, that sort of thing. So I, I would pursue those policies. I mean, I would fund police departments as they traditionally have been funded. I would look at expanding uh, funding or budgetary processes so that social workers and the like could work with these departments. But I certainly wouldn't replace police officers with those individuals. Basically, I'd have a lot of cops on the street and you'd see less crime. Um, I would put incentives in place. Um, some of my male followers might not love this, but strict enforcement of the child support system, so on, that would encourage family stability. Uh, Mitt Romney, of all people, actually has a pretty good plan around this where there'd be various taps, benefits and credits if you do grow a family, if you stay and support your family, so on. Um, so, you know, family stability, crime, um, illegal immigration is something I have very little sympathy toward. I would seal the border. I obviously, this is politically incorrect to say this, but when people look at why the working man's wages have stagnated since 1973, we hear all these explanations about greedy corporate outsourcing. Also something I would end as king or whatever I am in this scenario. But I mean, you know, but one of the obvious factors Two of the obvious factors are mass illegal immigration and the feminist movement. We now have something like 55 percent more people competing for the same number of jobs. Obviously, we're not going to send women back home. So the obvious solution to that issue is to limit and regulate immigration and focus it on merit. Almost literally every he just wanted a better life argument you could make in the context of illegal immigration. You could also make in the context of your local weed man. I mean, you could say this about any nonviolent crime. Uh, so very little sympathy there. I'd have a coherent immigration policy focused on merit, a lot of tough cops in the street, support family stability, so on down the line. Um, real crackdowns on opiates entering the country, the production of opiates domestically. The large majority of people don't need to take heroin as a painkiller. Um, some potential sanctions against China in terms of th that product from their country entering ours. Not too much race stuff. Um, so I gave the Republican side. What are the Democrats better on? 
that's scientific research if you get them away from climate. Uh, some of the broader social programs, healthcare, UBI. Um, I'd be willing to consider either national healthcare or a UBI program or both, given the amount of tax money we take in. So I, I think that there are a lot of broad-based things from, you know, anti-racist but hard and tough policing to UBI for poor people that would improve dramatically the life of the ordinary person. And I think it's hard to dispute that. I think it's hard to dispute that either effective anti-racist policing or a 30% boost to your income would make your life better. So that would be my focus. The the racial stuff, I, I don't really think it's that much of an issue. I think people are making a non-problem an issue because they are with they exist within an institutional structure focused on the non-problem. Um, I would keep the Civil Rights Act in place. You occasionally have some radical conservative come along and say, get rid of it. You know, we people have the right to total free association. No, I I think that would make it very difficult to drive from, say, Mississippi to Iowa as an interracial family and be served in every state. Uh, private sector affirmative action. I don't have a massive problem with. We've solved this problem already. So I would move on to newer problems. Yeah. A couple of questions I want to sneak in before the end of the conversation. Yeah. Um, one I would love to, to to ask you is, you know, since the publication of your two more, most recent books, given that you are a data-driven individual, and I think you know, this is a, an approach I try to take to beliefs that I have in being open to changing my mind um, as new information comes in, as new data comes in, as I'm exposed to new information that I was unaware of, that I'm you know, becoming hopefully less ignorant over time. Is there anything in your book or even in life in general for yourself that in the last few years, whether before the book's publication or, or after, you, know, you, you have been exposed to new information, new ideas uh, that has really altered the way you think about a subject that you, you previously had a very strong belief in? Um, I, I would love to know that if there is anything that that comes to mind because I, I do think that's such an important, uh, you know, human, everybody wants to think we already have all of the answers and none of us do. Obviously uh, I tend to think that we are mostly ignorant about almost everything. Um, does anything come to mind for yourself that you have, you know, you're, you're an equal opportunity offender in some ways. And I, I think in the best sense of that word, because you are, not afraid to speak your mind, which is what, you know, I, I have such an appreciation for people like that. And especially for yourself, does anything come to mind for your, for you, where you, you did change your mind on something that did matter to you in the last few years? Well, it, it would depend. I mean, there certainly are in general, as an adult human being, when you get information that doesn't match a preset bias, but that is valid, you know, replicable paper, latest issue of the journal you read, uh, you should you should change your position. I think that there is a tendency to kind of wedge that sort of information aside on the part of many very smart people. That's a negative. Um, I will say that because most of what I do, I mean, I've given the Black Lives Matter example, the interracial crime example, and some tertiary things, a dissertation I wrote in the past. I mean, the, the trans analysis paper, so on down the line, because so much of my writing is just it, um, anything from a public intellectual source to a book chapter, journal or conference submission, whatever, just looking at what the data is. Um, I don't actually find that 
most of my positions have been wrong. Hmm. Uh, that might sound a little glib, but if I were to look at the black, if I were to look at the Washington Post police shooting database, and then the best known alternative a bit to the left, like Sam Singway's work, and then the best alternative a bit to the right, fraternal order of police data, FBI data, something like that. And I were to find that there were a thousand unarmed black people killed every year by cops, I would change my mind after I vetted the data myself and called some people, did some research. But I, I haven't had that happen. Um, I do think there are a few times when looking at academic fields, I probably considered a bit soft to sociology or black studies. I have found a piece that's actually really good. And I've said, OK, well, this does change the perspective a little bit. An example on that would be the audit studies. I mean, there are a number of people that have looked at a pager, for example, comes to mind, uh, Gaddis, that have looked at how to measure racism in society and have designed these complex experiments where you provide lists of names associated with black or white identity to employers, see who they hire. They're, they're generally a little more likely to hire the white guy. But even there, I mean, my immediate response, I ended up writing an article for the journal Academic Questions about audit studies and how to design them after I read all those. Because I acknowledge, like, yes, there, there is an effect of racism here. But there are a lot of things that are never addressed, like the class problem, which everyone points out on the Internet, but is hardly ever tackled in these articles themselves. So a typically black name would be Jamarian and a typical white name would be Tim. And I don't necessarily think that hiring Tim over Jamarian shows you're a racist. That strikes me that the proper comparison is between Jamarian and Bubba. You know, like you, you need a class adjuster in there, which is almost impossible to do. Uh, one thing I suggested based on one previous paper by a guy named Derolia is that you use racialized last names, things like black man or Cortez that are obviously ethnic and first names like John, mm. and then compare that to like John McCullough, someone who has an ethnic white name that's as obviously Caucasian. Um, I haven't seen that happen a lot. But anyway, even there, I, I think my reaction was, OK, I've learned something about this field. I can't dismiss these people as idiots. But I, I think there's some obvious checks coming from that heterodox space that I'd want to see them do. Um, so that, that's a bit of an example. But very rarely have I advocated like a mainstream database sort of center right position and read a book by, say, Robin DeAngelo and thought, oh, I am a fool. I, I don't think that I don't think that's the way that the direction that normally cuts, to be honest. Yeah. The last question I want to ask you is and maybe this is kind of two questions in one, but the for people that are interested in the truth and they want to align their beliefs with reality as best they can um i would love to get your recommendations of people that you point to as being as impartial as as possible people who really do follow the the evidence um that you would recommend for for people to to follow, and then and then the, the additional caveat to that that I want to add is um, just for you personally. You know, I think we are mostly herd tribal animals, and a lot of our beliefs. I think this is why they map so closely onto the parts of the country where we were born, the families that we're in. Uh, we're 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 more lawyers than scientists in my mind in terms of the the way we think and the beliefs that we tend to hold, um, and it is it is a it takes effort and some intentionality to break out of that and listen to other people that don't agree with you and and to potentially change your mind you know you you have a rising public persona and a public presence and you say things that 
you know, as a black professor, I think really fly in the face of the traditional orthodoxy. Um, what has that been like for for you? Uh, where do you get the kind of inner resolve to, you know, continue to to speak your your mind um, in the face of all of the what I would imagine are largely, uh, you know, incent- incentives for you to kind of fall in line and to speak the the good word of of academia in general. Um, I'd love to hear that story from your perspective as to how you've tried to maintain your independence of thought in that environment. Well, I, I think that there's, I mean, I'm a hip hop fan and the rapper Tyler, the creator once did this famous tweet on why there's no such thing as cyberbullying. It was like, ha ha ha, just turn the computer off. you eat <laughs> And it was, just, it's, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, I, I think that part of the, part of the attitude that allows me to take something like a Twitter fight uh, not too seriously or critique in a journal or something like that is growing up in the hood. I mean, I thought I was going to go to what would have been the Iraq war. I mean, I had a lot of friends who did several of them died. I mean, I don't mean to say this in a bragging fashion, but between the Iraq war and the gang seeing conflicts in Chicago at that time, I mean, I probably have 15 friends that have killed somebody. Yeah. Like it's not that that's good, but I think that most people who came from a black or Latino or Italian American, whatever neighborhood in that time frame, could say that same thing. So the, this whole idea of I am sh- sh- shocked by the the level of content that I'm seeing on Instagram or something like that, I'm not really built like that. I don't I don't have that reaction to it. And I mean, I think other than that, there aren't too many consequences. I don't I, I'm not not online making rape jokes. You know, I'm not saying a lot of hardcore cancelable content. I'm no. just discussing the sciences from sort of this sarcastic sort of sent right perspective. So the the backlash that I would get there would be significant only if I found that to be something to really worry about, which I don't. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the answer. I also will note that uh, going teaching at a historically black college in Kentucky. Um, now, academically, our rank is quite solid. We're number six among regional institutions in our area and so on. But in terms of the the kind of culture, it's very different from what I'd be experiencing at sort of the Claremont colleges. So that's also important to remember. I mean, when we discuss a whole bunch of phenomena in the USA, including academia, there tends to be a sort of coastal, upper middle class, big city bias. And I think there are a lot of environments where it would be very difficult to at all um, diverge from the norm. But um, at most institutions, one of the one of the A&Ms or the military schools, the community colleges, the Southern flagship schools, I'm not I'm not really sure that it would be very much different from where I am. So I I don't encounter a great deal of hostility. I'm obviously pretty pro black. I'm not a racist. Um, And if I do, it's this sort of like someone with a Roman soldier profile pick AVIs yapping at me on Twitter. And I mean, I think the option there would be you know, block the guy or turn off the computer. There's there's very little there that's actually going to challenge how your real life is lived. Yeah. Yeah. And how about individual people that you recommend or you follow for, for other people in addition to yourself that you re- would recommend for independence of thought, courageous thinking, um, just smart individuals that you like? Uh, quite a few. I mean... So the roster, a good simple tip would be I'm, a, I'm an advisory board member of the group's FAIR, uh, Foundation yep. Against Intolerance and Racism, and 1776 Unites. 
If you go to either website, uh, 1776unites.com, or you Google Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism and click through, because we have a couple different sites. We have a diversity training portal and so on. But I mean, you'll find a board of advisors that goes from sort of Glenn Lowry to Stephen Pinker to Megan Kelly to Coleman Hughes. And I mean, I think every one of those people is someone that I would recommend in terms of, you know, get the book, something like that. Another piece of advice also that I would recommend pretty strongly is just use primary sources. So, I mean, in terms of all this data that I've mentioned is widely available. I mean, the interracial crime data is in each uh, BJS, Bureau of Justice Statistics report. Those come out once or twice a year. So, I mean, if you can just download that from the internet, which is what most research pros would do, you can skip the interpretation, whether that's from me or Rod Graham or Roland Fryer. You can just read what they said. So I recommend doing that, but I'd also recommend looking at those, the boards of those new kind of centrist database groups that are forming up. Yeah. Wilfred, thank you so much for the time, man. I I have a lot of respect for, for what you do. I've learned a lot from you. Um, and more than anything, thank you just for the energy and the conversation today, man. It was a real pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Yeah. Great talking to you too. Have a good one. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.